now, you know, I, I do, I feel like I am a champion of the unique. I'm a, I'm a champion of, you know, you're never past your prime of purpose that why does your life have to look like your neighbor's life? Why does your path have to be on the timeline that the world says is the standard timeline? What, what fun is that anyway? But also, you know, you are only in the now. This is, this is the moment you have. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Brie Noble. Brie is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Brie's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Brie is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, this is Brie Noble, and I am so happy that you are tuned in to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we're talking about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. And let me tell you, have I got an interview for you today. This could possibly be the best interview that I have done out of the 75 interviews that I've done over the last few years, at least definitely in the top three. I think you are going to be blown away. You're going to be inspired. You're going to just love listening to what she has to say. And so without further ado, I want to introduce you to Jennifer McGill. Jennifer McGill is best known as a Mouseketeer because from the age of 11 to 17, she was a cast member of Disney's new Mickey Mouse Club television show. Many of her co-stars like Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera have since gone on to have huge entertainment careers. Jennifer's path took a different turn, and while continuing to perform around the world in a variety of live shows, a recording contract proved elusive. Now, 20 years later, a full-length album entitled Unbreakable was just released, proving sometimes dreams can take a while. Here is my awesome interview with the wonderful Jennifer McGill. So that's a little bit about Jennifer McGill. So Jennifer, is there something that's maybe a little more interesting, unique, quirky on the personal side about you that's not in your bio that you want to let our listeners know about? Well, I'm full of quirks for sure. (laughs) Um, I'm a movie lover. My husband and I love watching movies and we are quirky about it. We just rescued a dog. He's about two and a half now. He's a terrier mix. We named him Baxter after the dog in Anchorman. (laughs) Um, And we love comedies, like slapstick comedies. That's where we meet in the middle because the funny thing is that I love action adventure sci-fi movies where things levitate and explode and everyone has mutant powers and he would rather watch like a drama romance. And I'm like, seriously? (laughs) Steal my movies all the way. Why? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm like, I don't want to spend my evenings crying. I don't understand. But yeah, he's, (laughs) we love movies so much. But yeah, we named our our fur baby after one of our favorite characters. (laughs) That's funny. I love that. So how did you get, get started in music? I know that I mentioned in the bio, you know, some of the credits that you have, but how did you find music as like this major passion and love in your life? It's the first thing that my mother and I shared when I was very little. She 
made a cassette tape when I was two years old and I have listened to it. I can't tell you where it is now, but I, I have listened to this little cassette tape and I was singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on pitch the whole way through. And so she was a music major and um, was more classically trained, but just felt that this was a great hobby for us to share. And it turned into a pageant situation when I was seven because we're, we're from Texas. And I asked her, mommy, how do I get a crown like Miss Texas? <laughs> and so I went to my first little pageant and she trained me to sing, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. And at seven years old, I won the talent competition and I was hooked. And so for the next three years, I was just focused on being a vocal gladiator. I mean, I left it all on stage and I won probably 48 out of 50 competitions um, in the talent division. And I just, I just, you know, couldn't get enough of it. And that's what led to um, the, the children's agent who got me my audition for my first professional job. So, I mean, it was all music. It was fun and work. It was just my whole core of my life. Um, and, and, and my mother was part of my core too. So it was all intertwined, my most favorite things all together. Wow. Oh my gosh. I mean, I have an eight-year-old, so I have a hard time imagining her doing that kind of stuff. Um, you really have to, you have to have it like inbred in your bones, I think, to to really dive in to that level. Well, we just loved it. Um, I agree. I th our whole family is musical. Um, you know, we joke that the McGills were never in the pews at church when there was a cantata because we were all serving somewhere on stage. Um, and um, I just, yeah, I loved all the divas and my mother just really fed that. I mean, we would always work on handography or outfits for um, me singing at the Lions Club or in church. And I loved musicals and you know, I just looked up to so many musicians. And when I say musicians, all I knew really were vocalists. And I just wanted to imitate every amazing sound I heard. Mm. So... At this point, um, did the agent find you or did you seek out an agent? She was a judge at the last pageant I was at where I won everything. It was ridiculous. It was not normal. I, I was so bad at the beauty portion. I did not <laughs> oppose. I was awkward. So I, I was really not interested. But you have to enter that stuff. And, and apparently... I think I won Miss Photogenic and I might have won some beauty thing, but I had like three trophies and like three crowns and all these banners. And it was just, it was, I guess it was a great way to end my pageant career, mm. but she was one of the, the judges. And so on a handshake between my mother and herself, um, they decided we're going to send her out on an audition. And that was pretty much it. it the, first, the first big audition I went on was the Mickey Mouse Club series. That was your first audition. Yes. Gosh. You know, it's like, it's very important for me to like share that we weren't strategists. Like we were not stage mom type people. Like we, you know, we would go order eight tracks and cassette tapes and like mom sewed my costumes. And it was very few and far between that I had a store-bought dress. We were just in it for the fun of it. It was like going to karaoke night now, you know, it was just, that was our thing on the weekends. And so on a handshake, even, you know, this agent was wonderful to, um, take us under her wing on such casual circumstances. And so I remember, um, when she sent us out on this audition, it was so quick that I got a gig that my mother, 
um, religiously and faithfully paid her, you know, the percentage that, that, you know, she would have gotten had we had a, a contract. I mean, she was so grateful to this agent, Julie mm-hmm. Erickson is her name, um, for what she did so quickly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, it was for the movie. Why? Because we like you about the original Mouseketeers from the fifties and Matt Casella cast that movie as well as the Mickey Mouse Club series that I ended up going to. And the writer's strike of, I think it was what the American Writers Association, I could be wrong, but there was a writer's strike in 88 or 89. And that affected the production of the movie. Yeah. So that movie was going to be produced out of LA and I was going to play either Darlene or Doreen. So I had a gig when I was 10 and it turns out that because that production wasn't going to happen, my um, information was sent directly to the finals of the series, the new Mickey Mouse Club that was going to be on the Disney Channel that was going to film at MGM Studios in Orlando. MGM Studios hadn't even opened yet. We were going to be like the flagship production, you know, legitimizing those studios as actual actual working studios. So we started production on the pilot before uh, the studios were were open to the public. Wow, wow, that's amazing. So. Interesting. Um, so what was the audition like? I mean, was it, was it really stressful? Did you have to go like with a, just a ton of people? You know, the first one was actually very magical. Um, it was when, when, he, when Matt Casella was first going to see me, um, I had just gotten my braces off. I'm 10 years old and I have like the poofy bangs and the poodle perm, you know, my favorite leotard on. I'm just killing it, man. I'm killing it. And I was fine. And my mother was warming me up in the hallway. It was just us. And Matt was ready early and he heard me outside and he kind of sticks his head out in the hallway, like, who is this who's warming up? And he was like, are you ready? You know, early. And so I, I go in and, and from what I remember, I mean, I, I had a really fun time and he actually, you know, this was before cell phones and internet and social media or whatever. And he actually, like, I really wanted to go ice skating. I auditioned at the, um, the Galleria Mall in Dallas with their big, you know, ice skating rink downstairs. I couldn't wait to go ice skating. I was like, yay, this audition's cool. Now I'm going to go ice skating. And so he actually tracked us down at the ice skating rink to invite us back to to go on videotape the next day. Mm. So, I mean, it was very much, they saw something in me and I was just being a regular kid who loved to do what I love to do. It was not about, I'm going to go conquer the world and be a star. You know, I really enjoyed what I did. And so when we went to the Orlando final audition, that was different for me because there were so many kids and they were all good at stuff and we were not all good at the same things. And so that was my first, um, I would say that was my next level of dealing with competition versus camaraderie. You know, in the pageant world, yes, there's camaraderie, um, but you're there to win a crown. And this wasn't necessarily the same thing because this was a lot of different looking kids who were representing diversity and different talents, you know, and, and certain certain age groups, you know, like 10 to maybe 14. Um, And so it wasn't, you know, I couldn't survey the room and be like, okay, who do I need to beat? It was more like, well, I just need to be the best I can be. And hopefully I can fit into the family. So it was a different way to look at comparison. 
And um, so I guess I was rattled, but, you know, I've seen some of the audition footage and it just kind of looked like I had a secret, which, you know, in audition world, they say that's really good. Like in a headshot that you look like, you know, something (laughs) that they don't know. And you have that sparkle and I could see how happy I was to be doing what I was doing. So I'm glad, you know, they chose me, but it still mystifies me that out of the thousands of kids who were blonde haired, blue eyed, girls, how on earth did they decide that I was the one and only? Um, But I'm eternally grateful because it changed the whole course of my life and my professionalism and my pursuit of excellence. You know, the wisdom that I gained, even when I was just a crazy mess of a teenager on a, a, you know, world-renowned show, is still so valuable to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we can't discount all the wisdom that we got through those experiences. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So did your whole family have to move to Orlando then? Well, they didn't have to, but I'm also very thankful that we were one of the few families who decided to move. Um, there were two families who lived in neighboring towns to Orlando, so they were already settled. Um, but everybody else was, I I say, you know, imported into these apartment complexes with at least one legal guardian. And in the beginning, we we taped almost all year round, especially Mm -hmm. when we were figuring out the material for the pilot and they were making a lot of first-time decisions. Uh, My mother and my little brother and I were in an apartment complex for that time. And so dad was left in Texas to hold down the fort. You know, he he had his job and our house and our dogs or whatever, you know, and my mother was a school teacher. And so, you know, she did what she needed to do to to be there for me. And eventually they made this, this really great decision to sell the house, pack up, put roots down in Orlando. And that is where my family was um, for that, for that whole time. And it really did ground me in a way to have a church life and a school life. And then this work life and a neighborhood life even um, that was, I believe healthier than existing in an apartment complex and then having to go back home and readjust to a world away from everything that you were just in the middle of. So, um, gosh, like I can't imagine, I can't imagine having to be so far away from everything I know and do this job that I love and, and have to go that far back and forth. You know, there were, we had Canadians who were on our show. So it was just, it was a lot of stress on families. There was a lot of flying around and families trying to find time to be together. And my heart went out to them, especially looking back on it now as an adult. And I'm just so grateful my family decided to just bite the bullet, make our life in Orlando because the show ended up being seven seasons. Yeah. Like how could you know? That's the the scary part of moving there. Yes. Well, just very similar to our mentality with pageants, which was, well, it's fun until it's over, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. that looks like. Um, we were also very much the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory mentality about signing the contract. Like, it's just, sign away, Charlie, you got nothing to lose. You know, there was, <laughs> there was nothing, you know, like what, we, I was coming from nothing. You know, I was a small town girl and I had a big voice and my, my family believed in me. And, you know, we, we didn't come from wealth. And so this was the coolest opportunity that they felt I would ever have, especially at that young age. And so they were just like, let's just do it. You know, sure, it's seven years of your life, potentially. Let's see where it goes. And they milked it for all it's worth. You know, Disney kept me the whole time. And that was really, that was really cool. And then how, were you recording during the day? Like, how did you do school? Well, legally, we were required to have three hours of school a day. 
which is like, yeah, uh, <laughs> but, it, but um, it, was, it was definitely a different kind of school. I mean, it was like tutoring. And so you did have a lot of one-on-one time with teachers to really specialize in your subject matter. And so even for the kids that didn't like school, uh, they got a better education probably in this scenario. Mm. Um, I loved school. I was good at it, I guess, playing the game. You know, I was, a, I was, an, ach- I was an achiever and a gifted student or whatever. Um, now I would never want to go back. But yes, it was, I did very well. You know, my, I mean, my mother was a school teacher. So, you know, I knew the, I knew the drill. Um, and so, yes, you would have to do three hours a day, but sometimes you could bank hours. Um, the, my, I will, I'll talk about my favorite season's scheduling because every season was a little different in how they, they did everything. But let's say you have a week of rehearsal and then a week of, of taping. And so every day you'd come in and if you weren't in some big project that day, you would do your three hours of school, probably go to lunch, and then the rest of the hours you would spend in rehearsal. You're either learning a song, learning a dance to a song you've already recorded in the recording studio. Maybe we're doing a drama class. Maybe we're reading over scripts. Maybe we're blocking the skit that we're doing. Um, Sometimes you go into hair and makeup and you do um, separate separate little intros and outros, or um, we call them spoofs, where you, you do a funny commercial that makes fun of something. Um, so there was all these opportunities for our, our sometimes very big cast of like 13 to 20 kids to be doing all sorts of different things during the day. You're not always together in this little wolf pack, you know. Um, and sometimes we would go do a music video. And that's why if you weren't in a lot of stuff that week, rehearsing or taping, you would be in school sometimes all day long, but you're banking hours every day past your three hours. Because if you go do a music video or go travel on location for uh, um, another kind of shot or shooting, um, you you won't be able to go to school that day most, most of the time. So then you use those hours. Uh, so it was really interesting. Like sometimes we got paid just to go to school all day, you know, and, and, and I would say that sometimes that was just torture, you know, for a creative (laughs) child to have to be in, you know, tutor school all day when they're, when their friends are going out and rehearsing or doing a skit or going to shoot a music video, but everyone had their turn, you know, to, to be more highlighted, you know, throughout, throughout the days. Um, and so then, yeah, once you had rehearsed everything and, and done all of the, the extra outside shoots, then the next week you go in every day after school and lunch and you load the audience, you get in the hair and makeup and, and wardrobe and you go perform in front of a live studio audience, all the skits and all the dances and all the songs that you've been, you know, learning. So it's been, it, it, it had, it will have been a very long day for each of us. And then you go home and you either have homework, you know, after six thirty. Um, <laughs> Or, you know, it's, it's a job. Like, it's like, I don't know, it's like probably nine-ish to 6.30. Um, but you are really being drained in a way that, you know, for, for little kids going, you know, growing up. I mean, I was under a, a magnifying glass from the age of 11 to 17 on this wow. TV show that was everywhere, you know. And so that's, that's when you're like, that's the first time everyone just becomes a hot mess in some way, like some hormonal crazy way. I, you know, I started growing taller than everybody. And, you know, like you just, you just, all your insecurities are challenged 
on a show like that because you're just around all these beauties. I mean, I grew up next to Carrie Russell and then little Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera came on. There were all these like handsome guys like JC Chazay, Justin Timberlake came on, Ryan Gosling. I mean, you just, you're just in all of these and those are just the famous ones, but I mean, everybody was handsome and talented and really unique. And I was having trouble embracing my uniqueness, you know, because (laughs) yeah, as most teenagers do, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it was just magnified because it was this small bubble of a, of a world, you know, but then it was being broadcast all over the world. So, you know, you had to keep it together and it's hard to be a professional and a growing teenager at the same time sometimes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So after that was over, what, where did you go after that? And, you know, talk a little bit about like, I, I, I'm guessing that you wanted to get a career as a solo artist, but that didn't happen. So, you right. know, why do you feel that that didn't happen? And, you know, what, what, what did you end up doing instead? You know, it's all about choices and timing. And for me, I was very into furthering my education. I probably was regurgitating my mother's words, but I believed them that having a higher education and really studying my craft was a smart thing to do. Um, I think when I look back on it, I was so well-developed as a professional that I really did need the extra time to develop myself as a person, just as a human being, um, because I, I didn't really know what I stood for really, when I was standing on my own. Um, And so I I went to New York University. Um, By the time I was a junior in high school, I had already done the early acceptance and I knew I was going. And so that was happening actually before we knew that the Mickey Mouse Club was wrapping. But my contract would have been ending anyway. You know, it was it was the timing of this this is good for you. You can go to college no matter what. You can go. I'm like, okay, so I'm I'm gonna go to NYU. I'm gonna get my my Bachelor of Fine Arts. I'm gonna study musical theater and acting and dancing, all that good stuff. Like I'm gonna really understand from from a classical point of view what I've been playing with for all my life. And so I was very eager to do that and to learn. And by the time I got out of college, the bubblegum pop movement had, had been in full swing. You know, around 1999, when I graduated, you already had uh, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Backstreet Boys, um, you know, all of these boy bands and these bubblegum pop type sounds and looks were in just full flex. And so I was really excited for all of these kids that I had grown up with and worked with and knew, knew them as people. Like I knew Britney Spears was a hard worker and I knew Justin was an amazing talent and that Christina had always sounded that amazing. Like I knew the kids were killing it and that they really were the talents that I was seeing. Um, and, and then that quickly turned into agitation because it was my turn to be free of college and to pursue my first dream ever since I can remember, which was to be a recording artist like these big voices I had always looked up to when I was a kid. And, you know, I I was really close. You know, I had a Capitol Records deal um, and they loved my voice, but I feel like everything else about me, they weren't sure of, you know, they weren't sure about my age or how educated I was or, you know, maybe how 
when I wasn't singing, I was just kind of a, a nerd. Maybe they already had Wait enough. Wait a minute. Moms. They, don't, they didn't like how educated you were? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's not like a quote or anything, but, but there was it's this, there was, there was this weight about me, both, both literally, you know, like, or I should say both, both spiritually and also physically. Like I am a tall, strong, you know, petite Amazonian, if you will. Like I am, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little force to be reckoned with. And I, you know, I stand up tall and I don't, I don't really use slang per se. I'm articulate. And I just came out of musical theater land and I have this huge voice, you know, and I have a pretty face, but they just, they just weren't sure if I was cool enough or whatever that translates into, you know, maybe I wasn't dark enough. Maybe I wasn't young enough. And I'm like 20, 21, mm-hmm. just the, who they were comparing me to at the time, they already had one that looked like me or I was too old or maybe too big, you know, like too, just too broad. Who knows? Um, what I'm saying is that there were a lot of things I couldn't really control that they were having issues with. And when I would sing for other companies um, in the industry, the only thing that they were sure of was that I sang wonderfully, you know, that the, they loved it. They loved my voice. But, you know, even my manager would be like, oh, great. You got down to a size eight. Can you get down one more size? And I'm like, dude, I'm five, seven and I have like no chest left. And what, what am I, what am I going to do? I decapitate myself and just, you know, take out all the wisdom. Is that going to make me light enough for everybody? You know, it was just this big struggle. Again, my uniqueness was getting in the way, you know, and, and, and I did get very frustrated because I'm like, look, okay. I looked at all these celebrities and I said, okay, like she is a doll. Like she's a tiny doll. I could sit on her and break her in half. I have no idea where her voice comes from. How does she breathe in that tiny body and wish that I could have that tiny body? You know, um, I would look at these guys and I would say, okay, I went to high school with that guy, you know, like I deserve to, to have the chance that he got, you know, or I can do this just as well as she can or whatever. And I just remember that no matter how dejected I got from the doors being closed, I knew in my heart of hearts that I, I would never trade my voice to look like somebody else. I knew that deep down, but somehow I could not release myself and free myself from these chains of fame. I felt like, is this it for me? The first time in my life at 21 when people are just trying to figure out who they're going to be, I've known my whole life and now I'm not allowed to be that. Mm. I felt very lost in my identity and I could not escape this, um, the world telling me, why aren't you famous? She's famous. He's famous. You're, you're as good as they are in your own way. Why this, why that? So, you know, I just started boiling it down to, you know, weight issues or body image, you know, I just started beating myself up because I didn't look like other people. And I thought, you know what, if I were skinny or if I were shorter or if my skin were different, I'd have a record deal. Ugh. And it's, it's unhealthy because how can you, like, oh. how do you even, that, how do you even know? Like that's, hey, you can't change that really. But um, I mean, you can, you can become more healthy, but how, it's, it's an unwinnable battle in my mind. That's what yeah. I set up for myself. Did, I was did being, you get into you know, an unhealthy mode with that? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I sank, I, I call it my shame spiral. I just, you know, I started self-medicating with really unhealthy relationships and environments really to try to fabricate my own rock star world, um, you know, in this bubble. I mean, there was no Facebook when I started all of my shenanigans. Um, thank God. But, you know, but I'm open about my mistakes now. I, it's just that, you know, I would, I would date recreationally. I would start running with, you know, a few, a few girlfriends who like to drink. And, you know, I, I joke that I was never taught how to do that right, you know, in high school or whatever. <laughs> like I didn't, couldn't do it right. And so I was bad at it, which means I was a lightweight and I would just quickly get into trouble. Yeah, like I was just a hot mess. I, could, I, just, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to be bad well. I was a bad rebel. I was bad at it, but I still tried because I'm a, I'm just a nerd. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a professional at heart. I, I'm a, I'm a creative at heart and I'm a good girl at heart, but I was completely, you know, rebelling against everything that I was created to be by wasting myself like on cigarettes and drinking and, um, you know, just bad, bad guys, I guess, or just, you know, bad, bad relationships, both guys and girls, you know, just really guiding me into directions that were unhealthy. So, um, I was kind of in the middle of this and really starting to suffer from some of the consequences of, I guess, partying or, or, you know, just being lost and, you know, like heartbreaks and stuff. Um, and a whole new world of rejection, you know, when my mother passed away when I was 24. And so I was really, that was when I became untethered. You know, I would say that my mother was my biggest cheerleader. She always had been, you know, you know, based on all of our, groundwork, you know, when I was a little kid and and all that we loved to do and her teaching me how to sing and how to um, present on stage and just, you know, breathing with me. I could hear her breathe in the audience when I was in these pageants and these contests. And, you know, it was like silly at the time, but she never stopped doing that, you know, just emotionally and spiritually for me. And when she was gone, it was like the last human voice that I believe that I even tried to believe about how valuable I was was gone, and so I had a really tough time kind of losing my best friend and and but it was a it was a time where I understood you know having been a, a church girl you know raised in the church and doing church musicals you know I mean all of that was part of my life too. I realized that I had always looked to my mother for the last word, and she was really on a pedestal that was meant for my creator, you know, really for him to have the last word. Um, and I just was wrestling with that now. It was like I was, it was like I was adulting, you know, for the first time in my personal life. And I was just, just being very bad at it. I was just failing left and right at this whole adulting thing. Like put me on a stage and I'll do what you want. But being a person, I was just, I was just like a fish out of water, literally flopping around like a a jerk. (laughs) completely not able to do anything, you know, just very dysfunctional. And all this time, mind you, I had, I had jobs in the business. That's what I was going to ask. You were working in in music. I never left the music industry. That's what's crazy is that I actually was very successful, you know, as a, as a normal industry lady, you know, um, after the whole record deal thing happened, you know, um, I went back to Orlando and I rebuilt my career again. Locally, I did some dinner theater and, you know, I loved every job that I had. Like I, I just liked being in the moment. So I learned a lot about live theater, about improv and about dealing with, you know, intimate audiences and, you know, taking anything that comes from the audience and throwing it right back out at them artistically, you know, Mm. which that's hard, you know, but that was, that was a cool training ground for me. And, then I was noticed by the the Disney World company on the on the theme park side, and I got my equity card through being hired um, 
to to be a, a full-time cast member in the acapella group American Vibe, which was run, um, the musical director, the arranger of our material was Deke Sharon, who now has arranged all the Pitch Perfect music. Um, he's deeply embedded in all of that. And so he's he's kind of like the prince of the prince of the of acapella prince of acapella um, really i mean he's like he's lording over it and he's just like a boss he's so good and um so i was under his training for acapella stuff which was something i hadn't necessarily dealt with before um and i got my equity card which was cool and um you know, I, I mean, I had a lot of run-ins with almost Broadway or whatever. You know, there's you, you, there was a time when every every state was calling me for Alphaba. You know, in in oh. into the uh, nine into the woods in, in Wicked. You know, which is like my favorite show. Um, and I just could, I didn't have the time because I was either in a, a a cover band that was going to Puerto Rico, or I was in another touring group that was going to go to Germany, or I was in Vegas when they needed me in Chicago for an audition. Like I was working, and I loved it. I loved working, but I was for who I was created to be and the forward motion that I I know now that I had in me to give. I was hiding under a rock even with these gigs. I was treading water. I loved what I did and I loved the people, but I really wasn't, I was hiding. I was hiding in, in Coverland. Well, I have to wonder how you, how you did that when you were, you know, when you were dealing with all these other issues of partying and all that, like, how did you maintain that? Well, the partying subsided pretty, pretty quickly. Like once, you know, once Disney came into motion again, I mean, I, that was after, like, that was, um, that was right before my mom passed away. And, you know, one thing about me, I, like, even now, if I were to enjoy a glass of wine, I don't do it the night before I sing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't do, I don't, I really think about it. And so, you know, I, even back then, that's what I mean. Like, even rebelling, I was just not, I was never all in. I was never all in this way or that, like, I, I knew that if I was going to go have, like, a weekend with my girlfriends, okay, that's one thing. And then it's just atrocious and I wish I could forget it or whatever. But if I know I have an audition, I would stay away and go, no, 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 this is what I have to do. You know, I, I I was always better at being a professional. And mm-hmm. so if, if, if one challenged the other, I would always go professional and give up whatever was personal, which is why I never held on to romantic relationships. You know, I, and I did eventually let go of certain girlfriends who were just, you know, they just didn't have the same values that I, that I really wanted to have, you know, that I, I wanted to, to cling to, even if I was just being bad at being a good girl, I, I still wanted to try. Um, and so, you know, once I got really into Disney and I just, I was in love with that job, you know, a lot of that did subside, but I never let go of being a hopeless romantic during that time. I loved the idea of having male attention. And so even I, I mean, the thing was, I was always good at, at faking it on stage. Like that smile was always going to be there if it needed to be there. But I remember working after my mother passed away and I had told a doctor, I don't know who I, it was like my, it was like, you know, just my, my, my general practitioner lady friend. And I said, look, I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs. I don't know how this works, but is there like a half Valium or something you can prescribe to me? Like a, like a, like a skosh prescription for like lightweights, you know, cause I didn't, I, I wasn't trying to go nuts. I just felt so awful and I had to go to work. And I remember singing seasons of love <laughs> in this rotunda, you know, and I'd had just a half of 
I think it's the Xanax. I think that's what it was, Xanax. Yeah, again, I've never dealt with any of that stuff even after that fact. Like this was the one time I, you know, felt like I needed just something to calm down, you know, to calm myself and focus myself. And even on a half Xanax, I was like, whoa, I'm a little loopy. I don't want to do that again. Uh-huh. Like it was, I was just trying to find my way through my mother's death and, and, and just grasping at straws, you know? And so I did, I, I, I had no focus except when I was on stage. And that was the only thing that I could hold on to. And it got to the point where, you know, I'd had my heart broken with all these weird, you know, dating issues that I had like put myself into. Finally got my heart broken to the point where I just decided to label it dead inside. Like I'm dead inside. This, this heart, this thing doesn't work. So don't even try. Like don't, just don't try. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a hard worker. And I'm going to continue to do that, but I'm just kind of done in that department. And so I did sort of run away to an amazing job on a cruise ship singing. So again, still like still doing like making great money, singing great songs, touring the Hawaiian islands. Right. But it was a very unhealthy environment. Um, If you were looking for trouble, you would find it. And half the time trouble was looking for you. And I was about 28 years old when trouble found me. And uh, it led to um, a man proposing to me who, um, he, he was a, he worked on the ship too. He was sort of a, like a, he handled VIPs. You know, he was in a really uh, kind of cushy job. And, um, you know, he had sort of described to me his life. And we're all very isolated on this ship. And I really just took him for his word. And even when I told him, that my heart was dead, that I loved him as a person, and I, but I just wasn't in love with him. He decided that he wanted me anyway. And I was approaching 30. And even though I was never the marrying girl, I never thought that was going to be a big, a big focus in my life because I was such a, a workaholic um, and didn't trust, you know, didn't trust romance. I, I kind of gave up and I settled. And I said, all right, if you want this, then, you know, if you're promising to take care of me, cool we'll do this. This is fine. Cause I like you a lot. You know, I'm just done anyway. So it might as well be you, you know, and it's, but I was very upfront. Like, I'm just saying like, it's all my fault that like, I don't blame anybody else for any hole that I dug uh, that I found myself in because <laughs> in my right mind, I would have never agreed to any kind of relationship with this man. Um, or even like down the line, you know, those, those who had, who had come before who were unhealthy. And so, Um, if you fast forward to, you know, I'm 30 and I'm, I'm married. I thought I was married. It turns out that he was still married to his ex-wife legally. So it wasn't like he was trying to lead a double life. He was trying to leave that situation. Um, but it was all done wrong. It just wasn't done prudently. Um, and in a timely fashion, again, timing is everything. And so because that divorce was not finalized and I found this out about half half a, a year into, I guess, our faux marriage, um, that was my big come to Jesus moment. That was the big moment where I stopped sort of treading water and dog paddling and flapping around like a fish out of water with my life and my choices. And I said, okay, Lord, I'm on my knees. I've done everything wrong. I have made all these mistakes and it's because I've made them on my own. I haven't asked you your opinion and I haven't really looked for guidance from you. Um, I'm going to change that right now. I don't want to do anything without you ever again. And I need you to rescue me because I'm all used up. Like I'm all done. 
if you don't get me out of this. Like, take me now. It's cool. Like, I'm fine. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I will breathe my last breath right now uh, if you take me. <laughs> like, just take me up, you know? Um, and he didn't do that. He did not take me, but he did, he did rescue me. Um, I... That was my that was my real adulting moment. That was when I picked myself up in the name of my creator and I put him on the pedestal and I made him the final say and and the whisper in my ear and I guess the romancer of my heart. You know, I really just filtered everything in my life through my faith. And it, you know, it wasn't like an overnight success story. I mean, when you fall that far and you make all of these huge mistakes, it takes time sometimes to rebuild yourself. And, you know, this music that I'm right now involved in, the project right now, um, is a reflection in the title of what that time in my 30s was. It was the season of being unbreakable in a way that I had never experienced before. Because before I was just like, life would hit me and I'd fall apart. And there I am on the floor trying to put this jigsaw puzzle back together with like saliva and super glue and yeah. duct tape. And it just looks, it looks okay. <laughs> but then it just gets broken apart again because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to put myself back together supernaturally and perfectly. Um, and so when I let God do that, um, it was just a completely different scenario everything in my life, you know, even if it was baby steps in faith and learning from even, you know, the next set of mistakes, every, every lesson was a shorter time frame. Every piece of wisdom came more deeply and my relationship with God got deeper and deeper and deeper. So now you find me a decade later, a completely different person who owns all the crazy that I put into my life, um, but it is also aware of how useful that can be, not only to help others in general, just in, 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 in you know, socializing with people and, and talking about my life one-on-one -on -one and talking with you about my life, but also artistically. Like, what is the meaning of, of creating and sharing with someone? What's the purpose, you know? And I, I believe it's to put everything that you've been through into something that can bless other people and also help them see their lives, you know, in your songs and in your words and get a new perspective maybe on how to take their next step or how to let go of things or just give them encouragement, you know, just how to connect. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm grateful for my past, not because of the choices I made because <laughs> it's super embarrassing, you know, but, it, but I'm grateful that I have the wisdom that I have now because I really know who I am, which was the opposite of what I, of what I used to feel like about myself as a human being. I was very uncertain and insecure uh, off stage, you know, right. and now it's pretty balanced. <laughs> wow. What an amazing journey. I love that you are pretty forthright with the fact that you're releasing your first album when you're almost 40. Yeah, I and am 40. I feel like that's, you are 40. <laughs> I am. I like that's so empowering to so many people. I know I tend to, to attract to my community, a lot of people that are like making music their second career, you know, they've had the kids, they've had the corporate career, whatever, and they've, you know, and now they're coming back to their, their true passion. I think you're such a great inspiration to that. Was there, was there a time where you finally felt like you let go of that desire for fame and you're like, I just want to do this because I love it? Yes. You know, when I, when I really felt that my heart was dead, I would say that I, 
I was, I turned against fame. I mean, in the wrong way. Like I, you could say I kind of emotionally spit on it. I scoffed at it. So, you know, there's that, you, you know, you, 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 you beat that up for a while and then, you know, you get through that, I guess. But, um, you know, when I surrendered my life back to God, I, that was part of the deal. I said, I give you all of this stuff. I don't ever have to do that again if that's not your will, because I see what happened to me when I took it into my own hands, you know? So I, I, I just said, like, I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind where you take me. I don't mind what, what the goal for my life is. As long as you're at, at the steering wheel, I feel comfortable. Like I'll feel fulfilled because I'm not, I'm not doing it the old way anymore. Um, I was ready for that because I had just hit rock bottom because of my own choices. And um, I remember saying, you know, I, I want to work for you. Like I want, I would love to sing for you um, as long as it's for you. And I would love to do a job that glorifies you. You know, I need to pay the bills, but I would, I just want to do a job that glorifies you. And so like I did say, I would love to sing again, but it was, it just wasn't on any kind of checklist. Like this has to happen in this way because that, that had been my downfall before putting this kind of pressure on myself and trying to force things. And I, I do understand now that if I had been, um, on a similar path to some of my celebrity friends, I might not have made it. Um, from the inside out because I was really an empty vessel that anyone could have come along and filled with whatever they wanted. Um, and it, you know, honestly, I probably would have died from skinny. I honestly think that I probably would have starved myself or medicated myself or surgically altered myself to death. I think that I just, I don't think I would have survived because I would have felt so much pressure to, to compete, you know, with everybody else. And, um, but I would have, I would have been very moldable, in all the wrong ways. And so I understand now how God protected me, you know, and you could never convince me of that in my twenties. No, ever. No. It would have, I, I remember like I, I was so angry and now, you know, I, I do, I feel like I am a champion of the unique. I'm a, I'm a champion of, you know, you're never past your prime of purpose that why does your life have to look like your neighbor's life? Why does your path have to be on the timeline that the world says is the standard timeline? What, what fun is that anyway? But also, you know, you are only in the now. This is, this is the moment you have. And so um, the irony for me is that I wasn't looking for a record deal um, this time around. This was um, a very small company. It's a very small company that I started writing scripts for. And we needed music for the scripts. And by the way, I'd never been a script writer before either. And so here I am like just getting, you know, God really handed me back over time as my character had, was, was rebuilt and restored. Um, he handled, he, he handled my life very cool, very time release wise. And he gave me like a script project, worship leader project. And so we needed this music for these, these live events that these scripts were, were, uh, were the foundation of. And after about a year of writing with all of these biographical ideas, all of these things that were in line with my life, like fighting the good fight of faith, like, you know, the armor of God, like not giving up, um, uh, you know, unity in the power of us and, um, you know, healing old wounds, not being alone, all this stuff that, you know, living fearless, you know, um, after all of this writing, the team discovered that we had enough original material for a full-length solo album. And it was my executive producer's um, passion for me to have this in the world, that there was a Jennifer McGill album. And so she made it happen. And um, 
so it would, I would have never done this by myself really. I mean, at least right now I would, I wouldn't have gotten around to it. You know, I'm a newlywed and, uh, I love, I love my little life. And, and I really understood that I had let go of fame when I was approached with this whole record thing. And I'm like, we don't have to do this. Like if this is a lot of time and money and like, uh, it's okay if it's too much, I, I don't, I don't need this, this, um, this identity. I don't need this validation from the world, you know? Um, and so, but, but that belief was so strong within the team, you know, that it happened anyway. And then I was, you know, of course, hundred percent behind it. But even now it's like, it doesn't matter what it does. We get feedback from, from fans, listeners, um, people who've heard the album, like strangers who have heard one of the random songs on a radio station that will ask who was that? Like the words just penetrate their hearts in such a way um, without knowing me at all. It wasn't about me at all. And that's how I know that the album is exactly on time and it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Even songs that aren't technically the singles, you know? So yeah, I have to tell you my experience. So I, I was taking a month off um, this summer and I was not reviewing music. Like I had had my fill of reviewing music. I just didn't even want to, but there was so much coming in that I felt like, okay, fine. I got to take this afternoon while all the, you know, family members are taking a nap in the hotel or whatever. And I'm going to go listen to music and just get some of this off my plate. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting downstairs in the hotel. Um, Cause that's, I needed to actually plug my phone in in order to get, it was almost dead. And so I'm like sitting at this table in the hotel lobby and I'm listening to some music and, um, you know, your, one of your songs came up and number one, I didn't even have your name on it because it was your producer's name actually came up because that was how it was uploaded. Mm -hmm. And I'm listening and I like the first few seconds, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> who is this voice? And then by the time we got to the chorus, I was like, this song is moving me more than a song has moved me in a really long time. I need to figure out who this person is. I've never heard wow. of this person. You know, and of course it was your it was your producer's name, but yeah. when I went back and looked at the email, I'm like, I still don't know this person. Like, right. how do I not know this person? This person is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, so it, I really do think that it has an immediate you have this immediate reaction to your voice because not only because it's so good, but because it's, it's filled with all the experience of your life. And I think that comes across in the emotion that you sing with. And I'm not sure, I mean, there's so many ironies about why you didn't get a record deal back then. Like, I just don't think you, your voice is awesome, but I'm not sure it would have had the impact that right. it does now with all that experience behind it and all that life struggle and, and, you know, then finding your joy and all that. And also, you know, I mean, who knows what would have happened had you come of age in 2017 and not right. 1999 when, you know, anyone can go out there and make their album and, you know, with the right social media strategies and all that, you know, get a lot of fans. You don't need record companies. You don't need someone to say to you, you're not skinny enough. You're not pretty enough, all that. Right. And so, you know, to me, this is just the perfect time for you. Um, you know, there is that, that feeling like, gosh, it seems so unfair that, you know, because you came of age in 1999, you didn't get to live your dream until now. But on the other hand, there's, it's so much different now. And I think so much more amazing than it would have been back then. And like I read in your bio, like you would not, 
you would have probably become an artist that you wouldn't have necessarily enjoyed being because they would have molded you into something that's not really you. Right. I mean, if I looked back on my 20s and if I if I had done whatever I did, you know, I'm sure I would have been in a few outfits that I would cringe at mm-hmm. now. And who knows what the lyrics or the videos, you know, I, I can just see it unfolding, you know, because I've seen it unfold in other people's careers. And in pop, you know, there's always this sense of reinventing if you're like pop. And I love pop music. Like I'm a pop girl. I So I understand that that might have been the flow I would have been forced to to go into, you know, that stream. And um, yeah, I I would have probably been a little embarrassed, you know, and (laughs) and now no matter what, I can look back on this album um, just however long I'm, I'm on this earth and say, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I mean, it's the most helpful thing I've probably done. Mm. And you got to put your artistic stamp on it, you know, for record labels or, you know, and all these, these big machines are controlling you, you're not going to get to put your artistic stamp on it. Yeah, that was that was one thing I did I did want to mention that, you know, my executive producer, you know, really like was super like a hundred percent about me being involved in this. You know, that that I I was the singer, you know, I vocal comped all of my stuff. I was sitting with um, most of the the production, you know, while while they were making like maybe last minute things or maybe starting to build a song. I co-produced um, a song called Hanging On For Dear Life. It, it was a, a reinvention of my signature song back from my Mickey Mouse Club days. It was the one that fans um, link to my name the most because um, it was on our little album that we did in the 90s. And so I, I was at the helm of that that song. And of course I co-wrote all the original songs. I mean, it was important to everybody that I was a hundred percent hands-on where it made sense for me to be hands-on and um, kind of going above and beyond by doing my own vocal comping because the, because the, the consensus was who else is going to do it? Like you do, you're the one who's singing it, you know, and, and, and in a, in a big record situation, with a big label, you don't, you probably don't hear the song until it's totally done. And then they hand you your wardrobe and they say, go to London, you're going to film this weird video. (sighs) This is, is, and here's your bio, you know, and maybe most of it's true. So it's, it's completely different. You know, that is the best thing about you know, inventing yourself and, and, and aligning yourself with whoever you need to in an independent artist con concept, because in that way, I still feel like an independent artist because I did so much of the, of the choice making, you know, um, when it comes to my voice and the vibe, um, you know, and it wasn't just me at all. Like, that's why it was very important that on the CD covers, like the actual CD, physical CD, I have all of the credits and I was either going to, I was able to put either the lyrics or the credits and I chose the credits because I really feel that that's a dying tradition that people need to be credited for what they do. And I thought that that was a bigger thank you than putting lyrics on that. I can always, you know, figure out a way to send that out later. Um, Yeah. So it's, it is completely a different story now, no matter what age you are. But I mean, for me being 40 and being so hands-on with this album, like I'm so at peace with it because I knew everything that went into it from a creative standpoint. Oh, such a good feeling. Yeah. So now that you are on the track that you're meant to be on, what does the future look like? What are you, are you doing touring? Are you, I know you love your little life and yeah. you know, don't necessarily want to upset the apple cart, but you've got this great thing that you want to get out into the world. What's, what's the plan for that? Well, it's really a, a dual kind of plan. Um, I love talking about 
my life um, in ways that help other people and kind of shed different kind of perspectives on challenges in life and stuff. Um, and so I, I am a speaker as well. And uh, hopefully by next year, I will have a book out um, that is my first book. It's, um, it's going to have a lot to do with sort of this warrior mentality, this spiritual warrior that I've become, um, and how to battle, battle you know, the hardest stuff that we battle, which really stems from our thoughts. It's really from the inside out that our hardest battles are fought. And so it's going to be about that. And then I include, you know, autobiographical stories throughout the book that help describe this new kind of combat training, you know, this freedom fighting that I'm redefining. Um, and all of that mentality is in this album as well. And so just like this album is a journey from my most vulnerable times to my most victorious times spiritually, um, the book is is how to help other people get there too, no matter what kind of life you have, like no matter what your job is or what, what, how old you are, you know, um, who you think you are versus who God says you are. Um, they, they're both going to be hand in hand part of touring, speaking. Um, so yeah, we're putting together tours. I mean, basically if you want to book me or if you want me to come in and, you know, help with some sort of seminar or, you know, just come perform songs, it's really up to um, whatever organization needs me, however they need me. I love variety. I love just rising to the occasion and, and filling in wherever anybody needs, needs help. So whether it's singing, speaking, singing while speaking, speaking while singing, it's all good. So yeah, next year is probably going to be a lot of travel. Mm. Well, on that note, for those of you that want to book Jennifer or anybody that really wants to, and let me encourage you to listen to her music. It's amazing. Go buy it. Um, where can people find you? Where's the best place to connect with you? Are you a social media person? How can they find you? I am a social media person. Um, the, the hub is jennifermcgill.com. My website has Instagram, Facebook, it has Twitter, I have a YouTube channel. But more importantly, even though the album Unbreakable is streaming everywhere, if you want to buy a physical CD, my website, jennifermcgill.com, is the only place to get it. I also have a few pieces of merch. Um, and, you know, every now and again, I'll write a blog or I'll, I'll drop a vlog on my, on my YouTube page. But it's, it's best, like, if you are a social media person. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and follow my music page, like my public figure page on Facebook. Awesome. Awesome. Well, wow. This has been like a long and amazing journey that we've been <laughs> through on this interview. And I'm so glad you're willing to be so open about everything that you've been through. I think it's really going to be helpful to, to so many artists that you know, I mean, I, there was a, an artist even in our free community um, on Facebook for the female indie musician community that was going through something as a young artist, all the com comparativeness and, and competition. And, and I know that you really helped her a lot with the response that you had. So I know that, that a lot of you guys that are listening deal with this and deal with, especially as women, you know, having to deal with needing you know, feeling like you have to look like a certain way or look like other people and this comparative thing. And I just hope that listening to Jennifer's story has helped you know that, you know, you are valuable in your own uniqueness. So thank you so much, Je Jennifer, for being so willing to share. And I really appreciate um, all that you talked about today.
You're very welcome. I think if I had a name tag, it would say Jennifer McGill, The Long Amazing Journey. (laughs) But you're not alone. Everyone has one of those. So it's my pleasure to share. Thank you so much. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com with editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.